This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined today by myself, Sam from Motive Partners, and Adrian Lovett, President and CEO of the World Wide Web Foundation. Welcome, Adrian. Thanks, Sam. Good to be here. It's a real privilege, Adrian, and our viewers may not know this, but you guys, you and the uh, UK World Wide Web Foundation team have recently moved into our office. It's a great privilege to have you here as part of the ecosystem. Today, we're going to talk about a multitude of things. Part of it, I think, will be a sort of education series for the listeners on what it is that you and the foundation do. And then I'd like to explore some of your thoughts, themes and trends in adjacent industries. We're going to start with a question on your career. Okay. And I actually, having done a little bit of internet and Googling, I've found an interesting correlation. So you've always tried to solve macro issues, whether that be around poverty, it be around debt, connectivity, a whole host of things. But perhaps the most interesting thing I saw that I won't elaborate too much on in case you don't want to talk about it, was that actually you began your career in a radio station as a DJ. Ah, Yes. In Portsmouth with Power FM. So perhaps from Power FM to poverty to the World Wide Web Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about your career so far? Yeah, it's an unlikely journey, isn't it, Sam? I got to admit, um, and it's nice, to, nice to be not only here, and we very much appreciate being hosted here by Motive Partners, but also being in a room with the microphone in front of me. It does feel like going back to where it all began for me. You look yeah. worryingly comfortable. <laughs> I'm going to settle in, and this could be a long, long session. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean you're right. Straight out of school, I uh, found myself with a job as a presenter, as a DJ on a commercial radio station in the south of England called Power FM. If you were 14 in 1988 and you lived in that part of the world then you might have heard me if you weren't then I was really good (laughs) (laughs) Um, but um, it was a great time it was you know five years on a radio station that was really you know aimed at younger people had a lot of energy we took on radio one and beat them you know and I had a great time but uh, I then got to the point where I thought I love doing this now. I'm not sure I want to be doing it when I'm 40. So I I then went to college, hadn't been to university before then, went and studied politics just because it was something I was interested in. And then, as you say, since then, you know, found myself after a stint working in in Parliament for an MP, I found myself uh, involved in a campaign called Jubilee 2000, which was an idea more than anything that became a big movement around the world that said that the unpayable debts of the world's poorest countries should be written off or largely written off as an act, not just of sort of charity, but as of economic sanity, if you like, as a way to mark the year 2000, the millennium. That was something that had a lot of support from the churches and from business and right across society. We had at the time the the world's largest petition, I think at the time 24 million people around the world called on world leaders to to write off those debts, which of course had been actually had been paid back many times over, but was still a huge burden on those extremely poor countries at the, at the expense of really, you know, kids getting basic health care and primary education and so on. So we got about $95 billion of debt cancelled. And the result of that actually is something like 
40 million children who are in school, who've been to school, primary school since then, uh, who otherwise wouldn't have done if it wasn't for those resources that were released. So, you know, we were proud to have to have done that kind of work. I then spent 10 years or so with, with Oxfam and then Save the Children. And then after that, the One Campaign, which is Bono's organization focused on extreme poverty in Africa. So all of that, as you say, started off sitting behind, I started off sitting behind a a radio microphone talking about the traffic jams on the M27, which are a very complicated issue. Uh, you'll know that if you uh, head between Southampton and Portsmouth on a weekday, but then try to tackle some perhaps even more complicated challenges. And here we are now with the challenge of uh, ensuring that the web reaches everyone as it was intended by its founder, its inventor and our founder at the Web Foundation, Tim Berners-Lee, and making sure it's something worth having, which I'm sure we can, we can get into in the, in the conversation. Awesome. Well, I'm sure our listeners are going to have high expectations now from DJ Love It <laughs> or DJ Love It, maybe. But, um, <laughs> there you go. What a very past and incredible to hear about some of the stuff that, that you achieved early on. And from really one rock star to, to another, from Bono to Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Yeah. Very cool. The World Wide Web has unquestionably been one of the most pivotal and pioneering inventions of, I don't know, the past hundred years, maybe longer. You're actually fast approaching in the coming days the 30th birthday, which is a scary thought because I actually remember the 25th birthday with a, a former colleague where we, we spent some time with Rosemary. That only feels like yesterday, so right. I can only imagine what it, what it feels like for Tim. Given our audience, and, and by virtue even of listening to this podcast, you know people utilize the web multiple times each hour, each minute. The interaction and engagement and connectivity is incredible. Perhaps you could tell us some of the key points in the birth and the development of the World Wide Web Foundation. Sure. I mean, it all and began, the World Wide Web, I should add. And the, the World Wide Web first, yes. So yes, 30 years ago, almost to the day now, March 1989, Tim Berners-Lee was sat in his office at the CERN laboratory just outside Geneva in Switzerland and was doing some work there, I think, as a contract software engineer and hit upon this idea, wrote up a, a memo, which, in fact, looking back, is really the blueprint for the World Wide Web. I can't claim to understand more than about 10% of it. Um, and, uh, and I'm You're not, not sure. Own, <laughs> Everyone else has got it, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not the first time where I experienced that Tim Berners-Lee's brain works at a completely different pace and depth, certainly from mine. And, and I think probably from most of us. But what he created there was a, a vision of how you could take the existing internet, which of course was 10 or 20 years older than that, but had been largely an academic and, and military construct originally, and invest it with content by linking that existing internet infrastructure with the emerging protocols of hypertext. So that meant that you could essentially ensure that a piece of content somewhere could link with another piece of content anywhere else in the world through the network of computers that they sat on. And from that start, uh, actually, it was an inauspicious start in a sense, because Tim wrote that memo, sent it to his boss at CERN, who I think sat on it for several months, as far as I understand, and then sent it back with a few scribbles on it, including one on the front that said, vague, but exciting. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, Tim always says, I'm just glad he didn't say exciting, but vague, which, which would have been worse. You know, so they, I think, bashed it back and forth for several more months before he was given the green light to spend some time working on it. And he did. And of course, the rest... The rest really is history. And the web developed. He, a few years later, moved to MIT in the US and the web consortium, W3C as we know it now, was created to organize the, the architecture, if you like, and the, all the protocols around the growing web. 
and all with a strong emphasis on a permissionless space, something that should be for everyone to be able to access, to do as they wish, to express all all of the best and sometimes the worst of, of humanity. And sure enough, within a few years, millions of us were using it. I think in about 2009, 20% of the world was online. And at that point, Tim and Rosemary Leith together co-founded the Web Foundation, the World Wide Web Foundation, which, which I'm fortunate to lead. And they did that because it felt at that time, I think, that there needed to be a group of people that were really looking out for that founding vision that the web should be for everyone and it should be a public good that serves humanity. And that that needed a, you know, a determined group of people to fight for it and to encourage others to fight for it. So that's what we do. And that's what the team works at around the world. There are about 30 of us and not a huge team, but we like to think punching above our weight and not least because of the extraordinary uh, model and the leadership of our founders. Thank you. And, and since its founding by Tim and Rosemary, the foundation's built a pretty impressive presence around the world from Washington, D.C., you know, all the way east to Jakarta, and as you said, exists to advance the open web as a public good and, and a basic right. But can you tell us how, particularly with your leadership, you're leveraging that global footprint? And I guess a large part of this is is educational and really you know, building the momentum and bringing the tribe on board so that everyone globally feels a responsibility. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me with this kind of thing, you have to be clear about where you want to get to and you have to be clear about where you are. And where we are right now is at this extraordinary moment, which we're calling a 50-50 moment, because just literally a few weeks ago, for the first time, more than half the world was online. We passed that 50% mark. So that's extraordinary moment to take stock, to stand back and to say, goodness me, what an extraordinary positive impact the web has had for the world. But then it sort of begs two questions. And this is about where we go next. One is, what about the other 50%? And that mm. has to be something that has real energy and real determined focus from everyone, from companies, from governments, from all of us as, as citizens. Because if you're, you know, if you're in a, a shrinking minority of your fellow citizens where most of them are online and you are not, you know, which is the case today in Ghana or in Vietnam or in Bolivia, you know, across the world in, in developing parts of the world. Increasingly, you're going to be needing to use the web to access even some pretty basic services, health services, the ability to apply for a job or to, to vote, to participate in your country. And yet you may not have the means to do so. So you're in a dire situation. So we have to keep up the focus on getting everyone connected. But the other question that is begged at this point, at this 50-50 moment, is have we got a web worth having? Have we got a web that we want? And that raises a bunch of questions, because we all know in the last couple of years especially, there's been plenty of challenges to that, plenty of reasons for us to think, you know, I'm not sure this web is actually good for us, whether that's in terms of issues around our personal data, issues around content online and misinformation and fake news and so on, censorship issues. So there's lots to get our teeth into it at this point in time. That's a really interesting point. You know, with the 50-50 moment and a shrinking minority not having access and connectivity that actually for those that don't have it, the wealth gap and the disadvantage could increase. Absolutely. I think that, you know, some of the work I've done previously, for example, focusing on extreme poverty, that's obviously a, it's a dire state to be in, but it's kind of static. It's an awful situation, but it doesn't really change. Whereas I think being offline and unconnected when most and increasing numbers of your fellow citizens are connected is sort of dynamically dire. It's progressively worse because your relative experience alongside that of others 
is going downwards. It's not just standing still. It, it particularly applies, incidentally, to women. And that's a, another big focus of our work at the Web Foundation is to understand better and then try to address the ways in which women are less likely to be online than men in the first place. And they're less likely, according to our research, to be doing certain things, less likely to be applying for a job, for example, less likely to be expressing themselves on social media. Now, we all know from our experience of social media some of the reasons why that might be. But that is the case, particularly in developing countries. And there is a real risk that we leave half of the population behind, that women don't have the same opportunities uh, and, and experience of the web as men. And that's something that we're really serious about, about addressing in the, at the foundation. Yeah, I remember watching a World Economic Forum video a while back. It actually, it was about a group of uh, women farmers who were talking about the empowerment of connectivity. And that touched all sorts of things, from insurance products for their crops to weather patterns and, and getting ahead of weather, mm. all the way through to distribution. And then if you compare the people that have that connectivity to those that don't, you really get a feel for how people can be displaced and disadvantaged so quickly. Okay, so, and I don't mean to kick off on a, on a negative theme, but just so that we have a balanced viewpoint from someone in your position, I'm keen to explore it a little bit. The world we live in today, where technology is truly ubiquitous mm. and all-pervasive, and it's catalyzing the prevalence of social issues, specifically including mental health. I think that, that's a big one that, that we're hearing a lot about. You know, children that have 30 to 40 different applications on their mobile phone, mm. 10 years before they would have otherwise have had a mobile phone, feeling the pressures from the outside world. People may be thinking about ways in which they can proactively affect positive and sustainable usage of digital communications more now than they ever have before. And I guess my question is two-part, really. Firstly, what are some of the negative use cases of the web and the internet that you're trying to lessen or mitigate or, or even avoid? And then the second part is how can people get involved that feel passionately about this stuff to support the work that you guys and the foundation do? Well, I think on the first of those, and you're absolutely right, of course, particularly the challenges around mental health, especially for young people, are more and more in the front of our minds. And for all of us you know, in our families, I mean, my own children are teenagers now and I see themselves and their friends navigating decisions and dilemmas that, you know, hate to sound really old now, but that we never had to face. I and and that kids shouldn't have to do. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, we are putting our, our kids in the front line of figuring this stuff out. Now, it isn't all bad, of course. Mm. There are incredible ways that, uh, you know, including my own children, young people can connect and do connect online and, you know, find information and connect with people they wouldn't normally talk to because it might not be, it might be socially awkward or whatever at school, you know, all kinds of ways that there are positive impacts for young people online. But yeah, there are real challenges. And I think, you know, to be honest, most of the challenges that we see around young people and well-being online, they're kind of amplifications of challenges that exist or would exist in any case, whether in the school playground or uh, you know on a Saturday night out with friends or whatever. But they're amplified because of the constancy of that presence, as you say, you know that that device is, is in is in people's hands almost every waking moment of the day, and that there are constantly uh, in both directions communications back and forth. And that is an extraordinary burden. So I think, you know, the negative use cases are, are there, although I, I would say, you know, maybe they're not quite negative use cases. They, they, that is a reality that I think we're all kind of trying to get our heads around. I guess some of the more clear cut examples of where things are going wrong or have gone wrong are around 
misinformation online. We've all seen the way elections have been influenced, uh, evidently, and in much smaller scale cases, just the effect of kind of low level misinformation on day-to-day decisions and, and judgments that we all make about the world around us because of what we see online. The issues around our personal data and threats to that, which again, we've seen with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, even just uh, in the last few weeks, we've seen new revelations, new challenges around some of the big tech firms and previous behavior that clearly wasn't in line with uh, a real respect for people's people's personal data. And also an increasing challenge, actually, that we're quite worried about around governments around the world increasingly using the shutting down of the internet or parts of it as a part of the standard security playbook, you know, around an election or around a period of unrest, shut down the internet, which, uh, you know, may well, in a sense, have the desired effect in terms of uh, law and order, but the negative impact of that in terms of not just denying people the, the right to to speak and to connect and to express themselves and so on, but actually the economic impact that we see on countries when the internet is disrupted in that kind of way is increasingly apparent. And you know, more and more, we need to get across the message that for strong, mature governments that are properly in charge of their countries, shutting down the internet is not the thing to do. It, that's the that's the response of a weak government, not a strong one. Yeah. But how can people help? You also said. Yeah. So I mean. To. Well, we're at this moment, actually, literally, almost as we speak, just in a few days, we're going to be we're going to be taking this extraordinary tour, a 30 hour journey to kind of bring to life the 30 year journey of the web so far. And Tim and Rosemary will be starting at CERN back in Geneva, where it all began. Tim will sit at his old desk if it's still there (laughs) and we'll leave there and head from there via London, where we're going to be bringing people together for a great event at the Science Museum, and then ending up the following morning as we hit that 30-hour mark in Lagos in Nigeria. As you know, Sam, Lagos is, I mean, Nigeria as a whole, if you like, is encapsulates all of the, the challenges and the opportunities that we see around the World Wide Web. You know, the, the challenge is, of course, that not everybody's got it, and there are real issues in reaching the hardest-to-reach hardest, uh, hardest to reach members of, of the population around the country. But also the opportunities, incredible energy, incredible leadership. You know, there are tech hubs that are as vibrant there as anything in California. So, you know, the fact that at the end of this 30-hour journey, which I think by the time people hear this, we may actually just be there. um, Tim will be saying, well, look, you know, looking to the next 30 years, this is the kind of place where we see that energy. Um, That's going to be exciting. So that is going to be a moment when we would love to have people getting involved. There'll be ways that people can... uh, can go online and uh, make their mark on the 30-year story of the web by finding the moment that perhaps meant most to them, the year they first went online or the the year uh, perhaps they met the love of their life, which indeed might have happened online, or made their first uh, paycheck uh, thanks to a business they started on the World Wide Web. All sorts of ways that the web has influenced our lives, and we're going to encourage people to to express that in a in a dynamic timeline, just as Tim is running a across continents. Um, We'll be having that sort of worldwide wave, we hope, that's happening on social media and online at the same time. I didn't expect when we started this today to hear from DJ Lovett talking about online dating. But very cool. <laughs> when I was on the radio, it was the old-fashioned way. It was like, you know, do you want to meet up? <laughs> and then she didn't show up. You know, yeah. so something's never changed. And then you had to send a fax. <laughs> exactly. So... To ride that positive wave of momentum, I often think back to 2012 at the Olympics. 
the shivers down my spine and an entire nation's spine when we celebrated the UK's creativity our imagination, our ability as a small nation to punch above our weight, and particularly that, that crescendo moment where Sir Tim was the pinnacle, the, the centerpiece for the opening ceremony, where he was sat there bashing away at a, what looked like a typewriter. It really highlighted to me and, and to the nation, like I said, we punch above our weight, but we have invented so many great things. And the internet, the web, has created that foundational layer of technology for so many other people to create their own masterpieces on top of. A bit like Steve Jobs with the iPhone and the iOS. Tim and the World Wide Web did so much more than that for so many people. Can you perhaps... Talk through what you think some of mankind's greatest achievements are via the web. Well, I think the first part of the answer is that, as you say, Tim created that extraordinary platform. And like you, I'm, it makes me proud to be, to be British, knowing that, that our country has been a, a home and a, a nurturing home for that kind of enterprise and vision. But also, crucially, that, of course, what Tim did was then to say, as he said on that, that night in 2012, this is for everyone. This is for everyone. And he gave it to the world. That, you know, is not just an expression of great vision and intelligence. It's also an expression of values and something that, you know, to be fair, are not by any means just confined to Britain. But I think Britain at its best combines that sense of doing the right thing for the world and doing doing what is also good for Britain at the same time. So, you know, I think the examples, uh, I guess, are, um, you know, you take something like Wikipedia, an extraordinary piece of collaborative enterprise at massive scale, the way in which we all consult that source and we trust it. You know, this is such an important thing, isn't it? In a time, as we were saying a moment ago, misinformation, fake news and so on. Mm -hmm. You've got a source there where because of the way it's designed and because of the, actually, of course, the extraordinary number of people who are involved constantly editing, checking each other, challenging each other, saying, you know, why don't we do a profile of this person and not that person and so on. You have a strong degree of trust that that is, uh, you know, a a source that... uh, that we can go to and we can can rely on. But, you know, in other ways, something like the Panama Papers just a couple of years ago, which were uncomfortable reading for some, but, you know, which led to a, a degree of transparency and um, accountability that we hadn't seen before and which would not have happened without the web and the way people were able to collaborate, journalists and academics and so on, around the world to to do that research and to, and to pull it all together. So I think, you know, the greatest examples of achievements using the web are where the technology has been in service of humanity, you know, where actually it's been people's values and people's ingenuity and vision. And the technology, the the foundation of the World Wide Web has supported that and brought out the best in it. Shivers down my spine once again. We talked about the 50-50 moment. And specifically, actually, you used the word playbook a moment ago, which I think is an important concept. Playbook, framework, or really just a sort of social contract between people, governments, and, and business, which is what the, the 50-50 announcement was, was signifying. Was it a web summit? That's right, yeah, the contract for the web, yeah. yeah. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about what your core objectives are, both near and long term with that. Sure. So the idea that came up in the course of last year, talking with Tim and talking with others about, uh, you know, the, the various threats that we're seeing to the, the web as, as something that is good for humanity, that led to this idea that actually a contract is actually really helpful 
concept here because we've got to recognize that there are different interests and there are different actors. There are governments and, of course, great variety of uh, diversity within different governments, even within some governments. There are companies and, again, a whole range of different approaches and different philosophies and different values and so on within the, the corporate sector. And then there are citizens. There is all of us as not just passive consumers, but as active participants in the, the world around mm. us. Mm. So governments, companies and citizens, different interests. But we thought, well, let's see if we can establish some, first of all, some common principles that we can all agree on, that if they were enacted, could put us on a path to securing the web as something that is truly a public good for everyone, as it was yeah. intended to be. So we launched these nine principles, three for government, three for companies, and, and three for citizens, at the Web Summit at the end of last year. Uh, we've now got about 200 organizations um, signed up in support of those principles. And we're now into the second stage of this process of the contract for the web, which is to turn those principles into concrete commitments. So this is the hard part. And we've always known yeah. that, you know, it's easier to say, taking one of those principles, for example, make sure that government ensure that the whole of the internet, the legal internet is available all of the time. That's easy to say at the principle level. What it means in practice, in terms of actual commitments, is not shutting down the internet around a you know particular period in a particular country. That's harder for governments to agree to. But that's the stage we're at now, is thrashing out what the real commitments should be for the big social media firms, for governments, but also for all of us as citizens. Because this is where I think the contract for the web is also going to be really important. Governments to do what they need to do, that's great. We can get companies to play their part. That's also crucially important. But in the end... Just like any kind of, you know, traffic system out in the middle of London or whatever, it requires all of us as individuals, not just to obey the rules, although, of course, you know, that's part of it, but also to establish norms of behavior, of uh, courtesy, of respect for other human beings, um, and also of kind of just practical kind of negotiation to get us all through the day. You know, we all do it, don't we, on the tube or uh, or making our way to, to work or dropping our kids at school. You know, you navigate. And I think that what's been missing in the in the online space, perhaps because we less frequently look each other in the eye and just see that we're all, in the end, we're all uh, the same kind of flesh. What's been missing is that kind of presumption of goodwill, which of course is sometimes misplaced and sometimes people do bad things. But you know, my sense is, as a sort of a general optimist, that that is the exception rather than the rule. And you can deal with exceptions, and we should. But that the rule is that most people want to do right by each other be fair and decent to each other and seek to make the best of their lives and uh, and to bring out the best in the, themselves and the people around them. And that's what the web can help us to do. But it requires all of us as citizens to not just say, well, this is someone else's problem. This is what governments need to do. And this is what companies need to do. We all have to play a part in that, in, yeah. in establishing those, those norms. So we hope this contract for the web, which, as I said, has companies on board in support, including the likes of Google and Cloudflare and Anchor Free and so on. It's got the French government and the German government, the government of Ghana now just came on board and others looking at it. And then lots of great civil society organizations as well. I hope that it might just by the middle of this year, when we get to a point where the, those concrete commitments are established, it might become a, um, a kind of a playbook, as you say, a kind of a formula for all of us to, to say, look, if you do this and they do that, and I do my part, then we may just manage to get somewhere. Having heard you mention all those names, now some of the meetings I saw you in at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in January make a lot of sense. Right. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. You know, yeah, Davos is a great place to um, shoot a few fish in a barrel for, for this kind of thing. And it was a very willing audience. I think there is 
you know, whether you're in the corporate sector, whether you're in government, whether you're an activist or a campaigner, you know, I think there's a lot of hunger to figure out solutions here, real practical solutions that can ensure that the World Wide Web really does work for, for all of us in the way it was intended to. That's exactly what the World Economic Forum was set out to do, right? Improve the state of the world. And we talk about concrete commitments. I, I was just having a sort of momentary giggle to myself, thinking about how slow sometimes governments can be. And I read the President Trump's commitment to AI the other day. I don't know if you've read it yet. I confess I haven't, Sam. You sh- you, <laughs> well, I was going to say you, should. you shouldn't. It'll be a waste of your time because it was clearly written by a consultant who couldn't spell artificial intelligence. And uh, yeah, it doesn't touch upon anything, which really spelled out to me just how long that journey is going to be before they agree, even internally as a, as a nation, to their own standards, let alone global standards of AI. So concrete commitments take time. And I think particularly given how I've seen the world react to the World Wide Web and, and the foundation, I think you guys are going to be on an exponential path to making those so because people realize how important it is. And it's easy to grasp with because people interact with it every day. I mentioned AI. That's a super exciting trend that we're seeing. That's again, going to be something that, that touches and affects everyone's lives. As we get towards the lighter end of the podcast, what are some of the most exciting and impactful trends that we're seeing today that you think are going to have a big impact on our lives in the coming decades? Kind of how the web did for many people Mm. 30 years ago. Well, it's sort of tempting to try and answer a question like that by dreaming up a vision of what kind of robot is going to be making me um, cappuccino in a a few years' time. Actually, of course, that's already happening, isn't it? Um, But uh, (laughs) but I'm going to resist that because I am not a uh, technologist and I think that's uh, a bit of a fool's game to try and guess some of the direction that that our technology is going to take. But what I do see in terms of uh, the most exciting trends that are backed by technology is it actually comes back to people again, people driving change. If you think about how people are building their own networks in rural areas, for example, that have historically been underserved by old technology of telephone networks and roads and so on, you know, in rural parts of America or even, I mean, I was a few months ago in in a fairly remote part of Indonesia. There'd been a, a cyclone had just gone through that part of the world a week or so previously and a bridge that was a few miles away from the village I was in, but which was a sort of key route to the local market and I think getting the kids to school and so on. The bridge had been damaged and people couldn't get over it, couldn't use it. So two things were happening. One thing was, of course, um, the folk in the village were typically on Facebook and WhatsApp and they were talking to their friends and family who were the other side of the bridge in another village a few miles away saying, how's it looking from your side? And, uh, you know, getting a sense of what was happening. But also, brilliantly, in the village, in a sort of dusty uh sort of committee room kind of affair in the middle of the village was a computer and it wasn't the newest it was uh, but it worked you know and it was hooked to the web and the village sort of organizing committee had created a website which they were keeping updated which was sort of for general village information for people to tap into and at that particular time they had on their main homepage they had sort of almost live updates or very frequently updated pictures of the bridge and how was it being fixed and was it being sorted out and uh, when was it going to be up yeah. and running again so people were able to plan and they were doing it partly because of this great service that had been organized centrally and also because of social media which they were all using anyway so you know people just taking the technology and applying it to their lives i guess is an example of how those trends are, are going i think also actually 
activism among employees within many big tech companies and smaller tech companies too, which we've seen more and more of, I guess, in the last few months, uh, whether, you know, in, in the big social media firms or elsewhere, uh, staff who, you know, whether they're senior or in the rank and file saying, well, actually, you know, why did I come into this? I remember why I came to this because I wanted to do some good in the world and yes, and to, and to make money, but to do so in a way that we're also creating real value uh, yeah. for ourselves and others. And where their companies have appeared to have veered away from from that direction, they're calling it out. And that's exciting, I think, and probably is the best hope of some of those companies kind of coming through some of the troubles that they're in at the moment. So I think that's exciting. And then also the increasing sense that people have of their own personal data and how they how they have the opportunity if they take it to better control it to better use it for themselves to to be clear about where it's stored and how it's used and who's making money out of it and so on i think that's a trend that a little way to go on that one for sure but you're starting to see some exciting progress thank you we've got a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap it up but question I always say, I always ask it around role models. You've worked with some incredible people from Bono to Tim. Who have been some of your personal mentors and role models through your career? Well, there was a guy called Pete Waldman who was on The Breakfast Show when I was on The Evening Show. He was an early, early mentor, early hero. But more recently, I mean, I... It is a cliche, and I guess a lot of people say it, but it is true that Nelson Mandela is somebody who, who embodied and exemplified pretty much everything I would consider to be good in the world. And and I had this extraordinary moment in 2005 when I was involved in uh, something called Make Poverty History, which was a big campaign that brought together people around the world wearing white bands and challenging government leaders around the world to uh, to do more to, to fight poverty and so on. And we managed to bring Nelson Mandela to, to London, to Trafalgar Square. He stood in Trafalgar Square. And I got to be the guy who spoke before the person who came on before the singer who came on before the person who came on to introduce Nelson Mandela. I think that was about the sequence. <laughs> and uh, and to be even just in the, breathing the same air was just incredible. And I had this moment where I'd sort of come off stage and was sort of tidying things up and he was preparing to come on. And I had this sort of moment of eye contact with him, just which, which was probably a second and a half. But it definitely was me that he was, he, he was, yeah. And to see the generosity and the warmth and the wisdom coming from those eyes, you know, spoke more than uh, a thousand hours of, of conversation, although I would love to have had that too. So I would, uh, yeah, I'd have to go with Nelson Mandela, I think. Wow, what an answer. Powerful stuff. Actually, nicely segues into my next question. If the World Wide Web Foundation could host a dinner party, a group of supporters, mm. and you can include people from past and present, and with really no agenda other than uh, other than people that have contributed towards the sort of stuff that, that the World Wide Web Foundation stands for. Who would you want around the table? Okay, so I can have living or dead here, can I? Living can or I, dead, I, and really, yeah, there's sorry. no limit. I mean, this, this, right. it could be okay. it could be dinner for four, or it could be dinner for a thousand. But we might be here too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah that might be another podcast. Let's see. I think first of all, I would get a couple of amazing tech brains. I would I would have. Ada Lovelace and Stephen Hawking. There we go. We'll start with them. Visionaries and uh, and, and in the case of Ada Lovelace, of course, the, the often unseen story of, of women in technology yeah. being far more powerful leaders than has often been acknowledged. Then I'd look for, for one or two who would kind of bring the real sense of passion of the ability to change things. I would maybe put in... Um, 
someone who I also had the incredible honor to meet, a woman called Wangari Matai, who died a couple of years ago, who was a Kenyan environmentalist and anti-corruption campaigner and uh, and was just an extraordinary, extraordinary person. So she can come. Um, then let's see. I think we need a... Yeah, you've got to compromise in this stuff, right? You've got to find common ground. So let's get Abraham Lincoln along, a little long in the tooth now, but he knew how to recognize that there were two perhaps apparently irreconcilable sides who needed to be reconciled all the same. So we'll have him along. I'd say Malala, because yeah. Malala exemplifies um, bravery and an extraordinary optimism, apparently against the odds on a personal level, and then being willing to step up and translate that extraordinary personal experience she had to trying to make a difference for, for millions, particularly of uh, of young women. And we probably better get Bill Gates along as well because it all needs to be paid for. So uh, <laughs> um, there's always that. Awesome. Love. You, want, you want to come, Sam? Love that. Yeah, I was going to say a, a group of iconic, inspiring, influential people like that. You need someone extremely good at serving food and, <laughs> and, and someone who likes drinking wine. So well, I, I offer my services to you. You're very kind. I think that we, we touched on a, a ton of stuff. I'm really excited about, well, A, spending more time with you and the foundation. Um, I think there's a lot that, that both of our organizations can, can do for each other. But also really seeing how this all pans out, how society reacts to the 50-50 contract, how individuals step forward to support you, and what the next chapter holds. Because, you know, you started with a vague but exciting scribble on a, on a note mm -hmm. through to MIT and some of the brightest minds on the planet contributing towards W3C. And then the foundation was born and now the 50-50 moment. Never before has there been such a great responsibility to ensure that those that don't have access to the internet are not left behind. And I can't think of a better person to be leading the foundation than you. It's a real, real honor to have had you here today. Thank you so much, Adrian. Very kind, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.